a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and once again, welcome to the show. Glad you could be a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And boy, are we going to talk about some things today that will emphasize just how necessary it is to be a wrong thinker especially in times where right think is being vigorously enforced through guilt and other means. I've got uh, got a doozy of a story to start us off today. want to mention before we start that our show is brought to you by our friends at the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, as well as our friends at firesteel.com. I will have many kind words to say about both of these great sponsors in just a few minutes. Let's talk about satire. Now, I'm a fan of satire in the sense that I love to laugh. I really do. Always have. In fact, sometimes I tend to get a little bit uh, inappropriate and, uh, and laugh at things that maybe I shouldn't laugh at. But I love satire for the simple reason that it gives us the opportunity to laugh about things that, well, let's just say, approach the truth. It's, it's, the, it's the way to address truths that are not easily spoken. And if you look at uh, historically what the... Uh, the satirists have done it's uh, it's their opportunity to skewer attitudes or mindsets or just ideas that uh, that are considered far too important and too puffed up and full of pride for anyone to question it's it's a i, I can't think of a nicer way to say this it's a, it's a way to stick your finger in the eye of everything official but to do it indirectly because there was a time, and I suppose there still is, where, you know, making fun of the wrong thing or making fun of the wrong person, laughing at the wrong time would land you in prison or perhaps on the guillotine or something like this. So in, in our current woke times, where humorlessness is, uh, is the, the order of the day, no one is allowed to laugh. No one is allowed to have fun. If there was a motto for, you know, the, the woke times that we live in, it would be no fun allowed. Everybody's a sourpuss. And worse, those sourpusses are just determined to enforce that point of view on everybody. These are the right thinkers. These are the people who tell you, you can't think this. You can't say that. You can't laugh about that or find humor in this. Yeah, they're a giant suck on a big old lemon that uh, just makes their whole outlook almost intolerable. However... Places like the Babylon Bee or the Onion.com have been remarkable at lightening the mood. <clears throat> and and I, I particularly have come to love the Babylon Bee just because they can say more in a headline than, uh, than most uh, satirists can say, you know, in an entire 30-minute program. So when, when I see that uh, there's a purge of the anti-woke satirists, it makes me a little bit concerned, and I'm going to confess. I don't spend as much time on Twitter as, as many people do, but uh, Twitter's a pretty vicious place. It can be, and I guess I'm just too emotionally fragile to, to spend a whole lot of time on there. But I have the greatest respect for some of the accounts that have been created, and they are parody accounts that are able to speak the truth and do it in such a way that it just absolutely makes the point and has fun 
at the expense of those who take themselves so dang seriously. It's a wonderful antidote to those toxic levels of self-importance that the woke like to impose on the rest of us. One of these accounts was an account from Tatiana McGrath. And the first time I saw this account, I was like, this cannot be a real person. I was actually relieved to find out, okay, it is a parody account. But Tatiana McGrath made fun of wokefulness with these over-the-top, outrageous declarations of wokefulness that, uh, that drove home the point that there, there is insanity at work here. And, of course, uh, no good deed like this is going to go without being, uh, you know, punished. So, in this case, uh, Twitter now has purged Tatiana as well as other accounts because they have engaged in satire. Tatiana McGrath, by the way, was a woke caricature created by comedian and spiked columnist Andrew Doyle. Doyle was locked out of the account, which has been temporarily restricted. This is the message that that, uh, he put up on Twitter. He says, it looks like Tatiana McGrath's thread about medical science got her locked out of Twitter. He says, all I was doing was satirizing the torturous logic of critical theory and how it promotes dangerous ideas in the name of social justice. How's that worthy of a ban? So here's, here's what was posted that, uh, that got Tatiana McGrath's account banned. The, the post says, Medical science is oppressive. It must be banned. For too long, doctors have bullied and dehumanized those who do not conform to their perceptions of wellness. They've tried to fix those with non-healthy identities via treatment. No more. She says, what we call illness is a social construct defined negatively against its antithesis, wellness. Society, in other words, has created the category of illness as a means to impose power on those who do not subscribe to the cultural norms of what it means to be well. Now, that sounds just like social justice, blah, blah, blah. Does that not sound like like what any good social justice warrior worth his or her salt would be saying? So it's it's hilarious stuff. I, I really love it. But apparently it was too much for Twitter, and so Twitter has pulled the plug. And I presume that uh, Tatiana is not going to be the only victim. The Babylon Bee, the satire site which brings great joy and laughter to my days on social media, was also temporarily locked out, although it was restored. Other satirical accounts like Jarvis DuPont, Guy Verhoeftwot, uh, tolerance police, liberal Larry, and Sir Far Sir Lefty Far Right Q- QC all remained suspended. By the way, Sir Lefty revealed on Parlor that the only reason he given for his suspension was platform manipulation and dissemination of spam. Kind of a nice catch-all. It's, that's the disorderly conduct of the tech giant's world. Now, all these accounts did was make fun of wokefulness. But it seems that virtue signaling sig- the uh, Silicon Valley t- folks just can't take a joke. Apparently, this kind of comedy needs to be silenced. Can you imagine what they would do if they ever sat down and someone started to play a screening of, oh, I don't know, Blazing Saddles? Yeah, they would probably implode and a black hole would result. Ironically, says Spiked Online, Twitter's purge of the anti-woke serist- ser- satirists rather, is a complete vindication of their work. In banning those who make fun of wokeness and criticize its censoriousness, Twitter has made it even clearer how authoritarian that wokeness really is. It's also shown wokeness to be totally humorless. Silicon Valley nerds need to lighten up. 
I don't disagree with any of this, by the way. I think uh, I think they do. And and by the way, something that you can can keep in mind when it comes to satire, satire is not just viciously ridiculing everybody and everything. You know, I I I find it interesting that some of the top comedians out there are some of the most negative people ever. I mean, there's some real pain and bitterness that drives their comedy. Maybe it's their that's their coping mechanism. I don't know. But there's a lot of unhappiness that drives it, and it seems like that's where they focus their unhappiness. They make people laugh, but uh, boy, they are just vicious and angry about everything in life that uh, doesn't fit whatever their worldview is. Nonetheless, they're at least making people laugh. Wokefulness and right think, not a chance. You are not allowed to smile. You are not allowed to have fun. You are not allowed to think freely. And that's really the whole reason behind satire is to point out, hey, you're taking yourself too seriously. It deflates that, uh, that puffed-up presence, but does so in a playful way. Not a devastating, you know, leave them laying there in scorched earth in the fetal position, sucking their thumb kind of way. So I would encourage you, celebrate good satire. It's been around for a long time. Some of it is offensive. I mean, come on, South Park, possibly one of the most offensive shows still on TV, going strong, too, for nearly 25 years. And yet uh, they are one of the best examples of satire in the sense that no one is sacred. Nobody is off limits. Okay, maybe Islam. They, they did kind of pull back there. But uh, then again, the whole Charlie Hebdo thing might have might have left an impression on them. But the bottom line is they're they're making fun of attitudes and ridiculousness that uh, too often we just we either embrace it as a sacred cow or just not willing to question it. It's been going on a long time. If you have a copy of the great books of Western civilization, crack open the volume with Rabelais. Read what a uh, 16th century writer had to say as he satirized the attitudes and the oh-so-important people of his time. You'll find language and imagery very comparable to what South Park is doing. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that potty humor is the only way that a person can satirize. I'm just saying that uh, sometimes to get people's attention, satire can be crass. It doesn't have to be, and this is one of the reasons why I love things like the Babylon Bee. Their satire is right on point. It's not crass. And it really does make you stop and think and laugh, which we ought to do more of before some wokeful person decides it should be outlawed. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Glad you could be a part of our audience today. Hey, listen, I I know this is going to sound like I'm, I'm begging, but and I really don't want it to be, but I want to tell you that if you find value in this show, if this is something you go, you know, I actually like to listen, or I, I find the time to listen, you can directly support this show. We have a Patreon account to put together now, or you can simply subscribe to the podcast and uh, I, every time I put up the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, there is a link to which you some, can subscribe to the podcast at that link. If you want to become a donor, whether you want to do it one time or whether you want to do it on the regular, you can do so. You could donate a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever it is. Um, in a very real sense, I am singing for my supper. 
and I appreciate each and every person who uh, supports the show, either through telling their friends about it or through, you know, directly donating. I just want you to know I treat that money as sacred dollars. I, I, this is, this is not about buying my Maserati. This is about uh, helping to keep the message of truth going. And I appreciate and thank each and every one of you who make that a possibility. So let's talk a little bit about the post office here. I know that uh, someone recently, I saw this on Twitter this morning. Someone referred to the post office as a multi-billion dollar spam folder. And I was like, wow. I mean, the postal service has been taking some hits here of late, but, uh, Wow, there, there's a lot of talk about uh, reforming the post office. Uh, some interesting conspiracy theories out there, uh, too, about how, you know, Trump is trying to do away with the post office in order to stop mail-in voting. Okay, I don't know about that, but I know that uh, the post office is one of those things which, unfortunately, has not kept up with technology. Now, I'm not saying outright, boy, it ought to be done away with just because computers and the Internet. Um, I think it's, it served a purpose. There was a time. When I was a missionary many years ago, living in a faraway land called Oklahoma, and, I, man, I lived to see that mail truck coming down the street. I lived to hear the squeak of the mailboxes as letters from home were deposited in there. That was just the, the highlight of my day. If you have served, you know, in the military, if you've been overseas, if you've traveled or whatever, you probably remember such a time, too, when getting a letter was a great thing. So please don't mistake what I'm about to share with you as, as a lack of gratitude for what the Postal Service has, has offered. However, there's a lot of money being wasted. And because the taxpayers are footing the bill, I guess the perception in Washington, D.C. is, oh, they can afford it. Why not continue on? So maybe it is time to start questioning whether the post office has outlived its usefulness. James Bovard has a remarkable piece on the American Institute for Economic Research website. And something he points out here, this is not just a, a you know, Johnny-come-lately idea that, well, you know, maybe the Postal Service needs to be revamped or possibly even done away with. This started, he says, the mail slowdowns started 50 years before Trump. So here's a bit of historical perspective. He says, Democrats and much of the media are screaming bloody murder over President Trump's latest Postal Service reforms. Trump recently approved an extra $10 billion in federal credit for the floundering mail service. But because he's balking at $25 billion in additional funding, he's guilty of, quote, the weaponization of the U.S. Postal Service for the president's electoral purposes. That's according to the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. Former President Barack Obama accused Trump of undermining the Postal Service to attack voting rights. Now, the Postal Service, James Bovard points out, is hemorrhaging red ink. And Trump's appointee as Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, recently curtailed paying overtime for mail delivery. Now, what that means is it's slowing some deliveries, which some news reports are portraying as an unprecedented outrage. A Washington Post article condemned the Trump administration for, quote, seeking to disrupt a constitutionally mandated government service during the coronavirus pandemic. Well, actually, the Postal Service has been intentionally disrupting its own service since at least the Nixon era. James Bovard writes at a high-level meeting in 1969, postal management decided to no longer strive for overnight mail delivery and to keep this a secret from Congress and the public. The Washington Post reported on this back in 1974. Management also considered cutting costs by educating Americans not to expect prompt service, according to the Post. 
Now, back in 1764, Colonial Postmaster General Benjamin Franklin proclaimed a goal of two-day mail delivery between New York and Philadelphia. In 1989, the Postal Service ratcheted down its goals, labeling as a success two-day delivery from New York City to next-door Westchester County, New York. Under the new standards, the target for overnight first-class delivery was reduced from a 100 to 150-mile radius to often less than 50 miles. The Postal Service estimated the changes could add 10% to the average delivery time for the first-class mail, which was already 22% slower than it had been in 1969. Postmaster General Anthony Frank claimed the revised standards would improve our ability to deliver mail, local mail, that is, on time. But that was simply because the Postal Service lowered the definition of on time. The Postal Inspection Service concluded that post offices generally have a negative attitude towards service improvement, even when the capability is there at no additional cost. Now, Bovard reports in 1993 the Postal Service created a task force to examine how it could profit by further reducing standards, shifting far more overnight mail into two-day delivery. That resulted in a trial mail slowdown in Florida with the Orwellian name Delivery First. Now, that moniker didn't mean delivering the mail would become the highest priority, but that the postal carrier's daily schedule was reversed. Carriers hit the street first and sorted mail afterwards, adding at least a day to delivery times. Well, starting in 2000, the Postal Service quietly slashed delivery targets in much of the nation for first-class mail going beyond local areas. A 2006 Postal Regulatory Commission found, report rather found that the Postal Service scorned federal law regarding the, or requiring the highest consideration to speedy mail delivery. Instead, administrative convenience resulted in mapping coverage of the two-day standard exclusively in terms of surface transportation. And that commission apparently found that postal patrons in several western states, including California, experienced far more service downgrades than in other parts of the country. Now, in 2015, the Postal Service effectively eliminated overnight mail delivery, even for local mail in much of the nation. Under the revised standards, mail was considered on time if it took four to five days to arrive instead of three. That's according to the Washington Post. 51 senators and 160 House members ineffectively protested the slowdown. Roanoke, Virginia residents were skewered because local mail processing was shifted to Greensboro, North Carolina, doubling the time necessary for crosstown mail delivery. Postal management claimed its 2015 planned mail slowdown would save nearly a billion dollars, but the agency ultimately only realized about 10% of the expected savings. Congress moaned, groaned, and shrugged, and permitted the Postal Service to continue borrowing federal funds to cover its 50-plus billion dollars in losses in prior years. Wow, this is all stuff that I did not know. I mean, this was all going on under the surface. I mean, again, I have no ill feelings towards the post office, but it's like, yeah, that's not good. And that's certainly not sustainable. And I don't think it's fair to ask the taxpayers, hey, would you mind, you know, fronting us another couple billion just to, to cover this? James Bovard says the Postal Service has gotten away with scorning its customers because it's effectively a federal crime to provide better mail service than the government. The Postal Service has a monopoly over letter delivery, with a limited exemption for urgent courier-delivered letters which cost more than $3. And that monopoly, which dates all the way back to the 1840s, has become more indefensible with each passing decade. After a half-century of service cutbacks, why continue nationalizing the transport of small envelopes? 
Ending the postal monopoly could spur the same explosion in options for letter delivery that Uber and Lyft have created for transit. But Bovard says the monopoly will not be the decisive issue in the coming debacles. Even if Trump approved $100 billion for the Postal Service, the deluge of mailed ballots in November will perhaps be the greatest election fiasco in American history. Now, I really haven't weighed in on the idea of uh, mail-in ballots. And when we come back from the break, let's take a little bit of time to unpack that and talk about, should this be an issue? I mean, if you're happy with your mail delivery service, if you know it ain't no thing, it's probably not a big deal to you. But for those who are concerned about that, I can see why this could be a very big deal when you combine it with an election. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Welcome to The Brian Hyde Show. And don't forget to check out the show notes, which you'll find posted each day that I do the program at thebrianhydeshow.com. I encourage you to check out the show notes because not only will you find uh, links to the various articles and essays that I discuss and uh, links to the various guests who I interview, but you'll also find uh, there's there's some great links to our sponsors, including firesteel.com. I really want you to click that link. I want you to examine their fire starting uh, flint and steel products for yourself. They have very handy videos that can show you exactly how they work, and I'm convinced If you are a preparedness-minded person, you will see the benefit and the utility of having one or more of these instruments in your preparedness bag, your your bug-out bag, your 72-hour kit. I mean, the, the ability to start a fire under virtually any conditions is absolutely priceless. And these are very high-quality fire starters. They are not, uh, they're not made from the cheapest materials, but neither are they prohibitively expensive. They're, they're very, very convenient in terms of size, but most importantly, they work. Check it out, firesteel.com. If you say this is for me and you decide to purchase one, when you get to checkout, plug in my name when it asks for the coupon code, B-R-Y-A-N, and they'll give you a nice little discount. So I've been sharing this article from James Bovard about how mail slowdown started 50 years before Trump. And one of the reasons that the post office right now is kind of a uh, topic on a lot of people's minds is because there's a lot of talk about maybe we should do mail-in ballots because of COVID-19. I mean, come on, the thousands of people demonstrating and rioting in the streets, the political rallies and so forth. Yeah, the people shopping every day. Okay, it's safe enough to do that, but by gosh, people standing in line to cast a vote, why, some of them might uh, cast their vote the wrong way. I guess that's, that's the thinking behind this. Can you imagine what would happen? I mean, I'm thinking back to the 2000 election. Do you remember the hanging chads? Remember all the recounts and recounts of recounts in Florida? The Supreme Court finally getting involved. And for about a month or so, we sat there um, on pins and needles going, okay, how is this going to play out? Will it be Al Gore? Will it be George W.? You know, I don't know that it made that big of a difference in the end. And that uh, George W. Bush never really turned out to be that great of a friend to freedom after all. I mean, after 9-11, you know, it all kind of fell apart on us. So I'm not putting all my hope and faith in the election, but I do understand. The concern over the election is a legitimate concern, especially when it comes to many, many mail-in ballots in November. If 
that's the direction that election goes. I mean, James Bovard comes right and says this could be perhaps the biggest election fiasco in American history. He points out that in New York City, officials struggled for six weeks to count mail-in ballots from the June primary. Up to 20% of ballots were declared invalid even before being opened based on mistakes with their exterior envelopes. That's according to the Washington Post, largely thanks to missing postmarks or missing signatures. Now, the New York City Board of Elections provided voters with more than 750,000 ballots with prepaid return envelopes. But the Postal Service routinely doesn't postmark prepaid envelopes, which resulted in a huge number of disqualified ballots. The New York Daily News labeled the primary snafus as a dumpster fire, while a New York, Time head, New York Times headline described it as the November nightmare. Other states also had mail-in train wrecks. In Wisconsin, more than 20,000 primary ballots were thrown out because voters missed at least one line on the form, rendering them invalid. In Virginia, nearly 6% of mail-in ballots for primary elections were rejected for arriving late. Wait a minute, whose fault was that? Okay, just checking. In Nevada, almost a quarter million ballots sent to, to voters were returned as undeliverable. So these are legit concerns. State election systems will be overwhelmed this year by a 10 or 20-fold increase in the number of ballots cast by mail. And Democratic activists are calling for changes to state laws to permit the counting of ballots that arrive after Election Day and for abolishing standards to assure the integrity of the individual ballot. These changes are practically guaranteed to produce far more confusion, delays, and most importantly, distrust for election results. Last week, Trump declared the post office has been run poorly for many, many decades. Well, in a less histrionic era, the Postal Service's failures could spur Congress to finally remove the roadblocks to private innovation in letter delivery. But as James Bovard says, instead, the coming delivery debacles may become the conspiratorial Russiagate of the 2020 election. You know, I wasn't looking forward to the election to start with, but now I have one more reason to go, oh boy, Ugh. here we go. It's just going to get crazier as, as time goes on. All right, shifting gears. Um, back to school. It's underway. My kids are back in school. My wife is back in school teaching. It is, uh, I'm trying to think of the nicest, most diplomatic way to say this, but it's pretty crazy. There's a lot of burden put on the teachers, put on the students. There's a lot of drama, too, that, uh, that is, is likely unnecessary. As, you know, the, the social distancing guidelines and masking guidelines, um, parents, uh, you know, some of them have, uh, have just been up in arms. Well, they're not enforcing these strictly enough. And, and, and it's, it's, it's hysteria. It's it's the, the same kind of uh, cancel culture mentality that you see over someone saying something that's less than woke. And you just have to ask yourself, where does it stop? Well, a lot of parents have decided, OK, we're going to embrace remote learning then. We're going to school the kids at home or we're going to do it online in conjunction with their schools. There is actually a somewhat dangerous precedent that's coming up now over virtual truancy. And Carrie McDonald, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says, with remote learning, it's the schools watching and reporting parents at alarming rates. There's an interesting unintended consequence. She says, as remote learning increases or creates more distance between school districts and students, school and state officials are clinging to control however they can. 
from sending child protective service agents to investigate charges of neglect in homes where children missed Zoom classes last spring to proposing child well-being checks in homes this fall. Government schools and related agencies are panicking over parents having increased influence over their children's care and education during the pandemic. I actually have a couple of articles I'm going to be sharing with you on the show notes today. Um, Carrie McDonald's being one of them, another from Lenore Skenazy, about how Tennessee officials seriously, with a straight face, proposed, you know, we should be doing well-being checks on every single child in the state, meaning they wanted to send Child Protective Service officials to every child's home in the state of Tennessee. Thankfully, parents stood up and said, yeah, we're not going to put up with that. And officials wisely backed down. But back to the article about uh, schools watching and reporting parents at alarming rates. Carrie McDonald says a front page article in yesterday's Boston Sunday Globe. This was public. Her article was published uh, earlier this week, describes the experiences of several parents who were interrogated by CPS agents last spring when their children missed remote classes or failed to submit homework assignments amidst pandemic-related school shutdowns. Now, some parents didn't have Internet access, and they were blindsided by the CPS investigations of, quote, virtual truancy. One Latina mother featured in the Globe story is M. Quilas, who, like many parents last spring, scrambled to care for her children and continue to work during tremendous upheaval and uncertainty. According to the Globe, then in June, Quilas was uh, stunned to receive a call from the state's Department of Children and Families. The school had accused Quilas of neglect, she was told, because the seven-year-old missed class and homework assignments. She said, I couldn't believe it. Quilas lived one of the worst nightmares for a parent, a neglect charge, if substantiated, can lead to removing a child from their home. Now, while most of the parents featured in the Globe story were ultimately exonerated, previous interaction with CPS, even if it's unfounded, can act as a scarlet letter for parents haunting them for years to come. By the way, I've talked to people who have had CPS become involved in their lives, and uh, this is not to denigrate, you know, the people who are, you know, working for, in, in my home state, it's the Division of Child and Family Services. There are good people who are honestly trying to protect children from very bad situations. But it doesn't change the fact, once the state gets involved in your business, it's very difficult to really call your home your own. It has a way of staying, like an evil spirit. Okay, maybe that was an unfair comparison. More troubling, says Carrie McDonald, parents singled out for CPS enforcement are disproportionately low-income and minority often lacking the resources to defend themselves against government overreach. According to The Globe, most of the families caught up in remote learning allegations are either Latino or black groups that are likely to be overrepresented in state foster care at all times. She says school districts across the country have a history of activating CPS against parents who stray from a district's command and control. An in-depth 2018 investigative report by the Hedinger Report and HuffPost revealed that schools increasingly use child protective services as a weapon against parents. And this is especially true against parents who lack the means to fight back. We've got to take a quick break, and so we'll do it. We'll come back to this story right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you an article from Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education. With remote learning, schools are watching and reporting parents at alarming rates. Oh, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? The more parents start to kind of separate themselves from that education bureaucracy, the, the more closely that bureaucracy is watching them and keeping tabs on them for signs of what it calls neglect. Now, this is not happening universally, but the fact that it's happening anywhere should be a bit of a warning sign for parents who are thinking that, yeah, maybe we're going to go ahead and, <clears throat> and educate our kids at home or do it remotely. Apparently, as, as Carrie McDonald explains, truancy has long been a trigger for CPS investigations. Now, virtual truancy seems poised to accelerate these practices during the pandemic. And she says this is particularly concerning because just as in typical truancy cases, virtual truancy is often prompted by factors other than parental neglect. For instance, special needs students or students with disabilities or health conditions may have more school absences and they may find virtual learning to be uniquely challenging. A 2019 HuffPost article entitled The Human Costs of Kamala Harris's War on Truancy found that strict truancy laws and enforcement terrorized families with parents being pulled out of their homes in handcuff in handcuffs rather and sent to jail. Cherie Peoples, one of the parents spotlighted in the HuffPost piece, was, whose daughter was uh, missed school frequently due to sickle cell anemia, was awakened in the early hours by police officers who arrested her for truancy. She told the HuffPost, you would swear I had killed somebody. The HuffPost article revealed that then-Democratic presidential candidate and now the presumptive de Democratic vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris, was responsible for much of the heightened aggression toward parents regarding truancy. As California's Attorney General, Harris was a crusader against truancy and was instrumental in toughening criminal prosecution of parents whose children missed too much school. According to HuffPost, Harris persuaded the state legislature to adopt harsher penalties for truancy. Under the new law, the parent or guardian of a young truant child could face a fine of $2,500 or more or one year in jail. Now, Harris pushed hard for the law as she was running for Attorney General, and it passed just as she won the election. We are putting parents on notice, she said at her 2011 inauguration. Now, Carrie McDonald says criminal investigations of child neglect tied to virtual truancy are set to skyrocket this fall as school districts across the country adopt remote learning plans. Worried that parents can't be trusted to care for their own children, some education officials have proposed large-scale child well-being checks by government agents. Last week, the Tennessee Department of Education announced it would be performing these well-being checks on children across the state. Now, this plan created an uproar among Tennessee parents and conservative lawmakers, and it was such an uproar that the proposed initiative was withdrawn and its guidelines removed from the Education Department's website. Despite this immediate victory, though, Kerry says all parents should remain on alert. School and state officials, aided by high-profile academics, will likely seek to increase CPS involvement in family affairs during remote learning and beyond. Elizabeth Bartholay, the Harvard Law School professor who made headlines last spring when she called for a presumptive ban on homeschooling, spoke out last week in favor of increased CPS action this fall. In an interview with Harvard Law Today, Bartholay said, My overall general recommendation is that educators and CPS agencies need to recognize the level of programs that kids at home are now facing in terms of risk both education and maltreatment. 
and come up with some creative new solutions. In that interview, Bartholay acknowledged the heightened interest in independent homeschooling as parents choose to forego district learning this fall and consider separating from their school district going forward. Now, according to Bartholay, roughly 3% of the population is now homeschooled. Let's say that increases to 6% post-COVID. Legislators and other policymakers may look at that and say, wow, now this is a big phenomenon. It may continue to grow. Of course, it shouldn't just be this lawless world out there with no rules and regulations and oversight. Of course, this should be part of our overall regulated education system. End quote. Wow. Statists gonna state. As Carrie McDonald says, as she's written previously, homeschooling should not be part of the overall regulated education system. It is a form of private education that is separate and distinct from state schooling. And she says many parents are now finding they prefer homeschooling over other education options. Parents are pulling their children out of school this fall in record numbers, dissatisfied with school reopening plans, and aiming for greater educational freedom and flexibility. So many parents submitted online intent to homeschool forms in North Carolina last month that it crashed the state's non-public education website. Perhaps not surprisingly, a recent report by a law professor at North Carolina's Duke University called for greater regulation and oversight of the state's growing ranks of homeschoolers. She says as parents pull away from state-controlled education and assume greater responsibility for their children's learning, the state will hasten efforts to maintain and expand its authority through its monopoly on the use of force. And this is where we have to be very careful. From virtual truancy claims and increased CPS investigations that disproportionately target poor parents and families of color, to calls for child well-being checks and more homeschooling regulations, the state will not willingly, willingly yield control of children's education to parents. So Carrie McDonald says parents should strongly reject these heavy-handed efforts to interfere with family life during and after the pandemic and be especially vigilant about helping low-income and minority parents to resist as well. Minimizing state power while maximizing individual liberty is the hallmark of a free society. And Carrie says now more than ever, parents are exercising and securing their freedom to raise and educate their children as they choose. Parents may have been put on notice, but they are pushing back and opting out. I'm glad to hear this. And I'll tell you, my heart goes out to those parents who are trying to do what's right by their children and, you know, to protect them from, you know, what they see as risks to, to uh, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. Whatever you may think of, you know, the masks or the social distancing there is no doubt, or at least I don't think any thinking person could try to make the case that there is not a psychological toll that is, is brought along with these efforts and these mandates. And, you know, in, in this case, uh, I, I've got to just vent for a moment here because my wife is a teacher and, and she takes very seriously, not only, you know, educating these kids, but looking out for their well-being. She's she's not a scofflaw. She's not as much of a wrong thinker as me either, but she's she's just doing what she is is believes is right. And she recognized, you know, that for the kids, keeping a mask on all day long is really difficult. And apparently uh, the parent of uh, one or more students at her school complained about I don't know whose classroom it was in. One of the teachers or several of the teachers weren't enforcing the mask regulations as vigorously and the, it's, it's not the fact that parents were like, well, I have a problem with that. You know, I want those observed. 
It's the route that they went. They, they went full cancel culture mob mentality. And we're urging people, contact the principal. Contact the principal. Get the principal involved. And, and, and the justification to me was, was the scariest part of all because what they kept saying is, the governor has decreed that this has to be so. You're disobeying the governor. That's a misdemeanor. Holy heel clickers, Batman. That is, what kind of mentality is that? As, as my daughter, my oldest daughter was hearing about this last night. She's like, oh my gosh. I'm surprised I'm going to say, they're keeping Jews in their basement. Because it's that same mentality of slavish obedience to whatever somebody in official authority has said. Look, the reality is, whatever you may feel about masks, whether you are pro-mask or anti-mask, it is extremely difficult to get kids of all ages to wear those masks all day long. They need breaks. They need that ability to breathe free. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I've seen pictures. Uh, my friend Connor Boyack posted a picture yesterday and said, hey, describe this in, in one word. And it was a picture of kids socially distanced and eating lunch. And the, the only word that came to mind for me was dystopian. It's surreal. It's, it's hard to even imagine. These kids separated by great distance and blocked off areas at the lunch tables and some kids up on the stage. And, and they're, they're socially, they can't talk to anybody. They can't, uh, they can't, you know, be around other people without their masks. Look, I get that there's a pandemic. But I want to try to keep some perspective here. The, the virus in question is not going to kill roughly 99 point something percent of us. Even those who get it, 99 plus percent survive it. So this doesn't mean that there's no risk to anybody. There are people who are definitely at risk. Those are the people who we should be taking measures to protect. If there needs to be a quarantine, quarantine those individuals and do what you can to mitigate the risks for them. But for the rest of us, you might want to take a look at Sweden's numbers. No masks, no lockdowns, no hardcore enforcement. And their cases continue to drop by the day. There's a lesson in that. We'll talk about that coming up in the next hour of the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.